Concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Gracious God, Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray now that as we begin to walk through this um, so important and applicable and needed passage for today, Lord. Not just for adults, not just for the adults who are married, but even for the younger generation in our midst. Father, we pray that you would, through your word, that you would transform our thinking. The way in which we view marriage, the way in which we view sexual relations within marriage. So, Father, I pray that you would that you would grant me wisdom in choosing my words carefully and wisely as there are little ears in this room. Yet we recognize that marriage and sexual relations within marriage are two things that you created for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. And the world has corrupted these two beautiful things to such an extent that often within the church it is difficult for us to discuss these topics without feeling as though we are talking about things that ought not to be spoken. So Father, we pray that you would enable us to think biblically, to understand these institutions which you created, Father, that we would understand them rightly and that our wrong perceptions and attitudes and ideas would be stripped away. So, Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, because of the rampant sexual promiscuity that exists 
not only in the United States, not just in America, but really throughout the Western world, primarily throughout the world, obviously sexual immorality and promiscuity exist throughout the world, but um, I think the Western world has twisted sexuality in a, a, a special kind of demented way. And as a result, those of us who live in the Western world, and particularly in the United States, have a warped view of sex. As a result, this leads to a warped view of marriage. And ultimately, this warped view of marriage leads to an enormous amount of marriage difficulty. To the extent that most Christians who were even raised in the church, struggle to understand what is the purpose of marriage. Why does it exist and how should we approach this glorious institution? Because growing up in a Christian home doesn't shield you from being negatively impacted by the views of the world. And then we bring those views into our marriage. We bring those views into the bedroom. And it creates an enormous amount of problems upon the family. Thus, while the key, to be clear, while the key to a healthy marriage is having Christ as the foundational focal point of your marriage, that is true. To have a long-lasting, happy marriage, enduring marriage, you need to have Christ at the very heart of that marriage. He must be the foundation of the way in which husbands and wives interact with one another. However, while the key to a healthy marriage is having Christ as the foundational focal point of that marriage, healthy sexual relations within marriage is the primary barometer of a healthy marriage. I'll say that again. Healthy sexual relations within marriage is the primary barometer of a healthy marriage. And if you're not sure you agree with me on that point, I hope to convince you by the end of this message. But first, I need to qualify what everything that I'm going to say this morning by saying this. I understand that with some couples, healthy sexual relations is not always possible due to physical disability or sometimes geographical distance. Right? So we have to bear that in mind. But barring physical disability, barring geographical reasons, healthy sexual relations within marriage is the foremost barometer of a healthy Christ-centered marriage. And I'll give you five reasons why I think that. Number one, there is nothing more vulnerable and trusting for a husband and wife to do together. There is no moment in a marriage in, with a, in which a husband and a wife can be 
the most vulnerable and transparent and trusting with one another. This is particularly true of the wife, who is often much physically weaker and smaller than her husband. There is an enormous amount of trust and vulnerability that takes place in that moment between a husband and a wife. Secondly, there is nothing more selfless and sacrificial that a husband or a wife can do for each other or to each other, especially when one is not in the mood. There is nothing more selfless or sacrificial. More sacrificial than getting coffee, more sacrificial than cleaning the house, more sacrificial than changing the oil in the car. There is nothing more selfless and sacrificial that a husband and a wife can do for each other and to each other. To say to one another, I am here and I am available for your enjoyment and not primarily for mine is the epitome of selflessness and sacrificial. Number three, insects, a husband and a wife, in a very real and palpable way, become one flesh. Yes, it is true that in marriage, the Bible says, the two are joined together and they become one, and that is true, and that is always true, but there is no point in which that is more real and genuine than when a husband and wife enjoy one another intimately. Number four, in sexual relations, the husband and the wife become one, both in body and soul. There is the mingling of souls. It is a spiritual event that takes place. And the fifth reason I want to argue, and I hope to prove it from the text, we haven't got there yet, but the fifth reason I want to argue that marriage, that sexual relations within marriage is the foremost barometer of a healthy Christ-centered marriage is that as an expression of love, as an expression of love, sex within marriage most reflects, most reflects the passionate love Christ has for his bride, the church, and the way in which the church is to express her love to Christ. Because it's a well-known fact that men typically, naturally desire to express their love to their wives physically. No secret. But in a different sense, in a biblical sense, wives should also want to do the same, to express their love 
to their husbands physically, but for a slightly different reason. Here's what I mean. Let me try to argue my point here. In Ephesians 5, Paul uses the relationship between Christ and the church as uh, the model of the relationship between a husband and his wife. Using that model, that illustration that Paul lays out for us in Ephesians 5, when we think about the relationship between Christ and the church and how that began and how that continues, Christ used his body, he used his physical body to do something for and to his bride as an expression of his love for her. Namely, that he was willing to die on the cross for her sins. But nonetheless, don't miss the point that Christ used his body in order to physically express his love for his bride by doing something for her and to And Christ's bride, the church, is to respond by expressing her love for Christ by submitting to his will and saying to him, I am here for your enjoyment and for your pleasure. That is the relationship between Christ and his bride. Sex within marriage most reflects, most reflects the passionate love Christ has for his bride, the church, and the way in which the church is to express her love to Christ. The church submits to his will and says, we are here for your enjoyment and for your And Christ takes great delight in finding his joy and his pleasure in his bride. For these reasons, healthy sexual relations within marriage is the foremost barometer, the foremost measurement, means of measurement of a healthy, Christ-centered marriage. Because when a husband loves his wife in the way that Christ loves the church, with gentleness, tenderness, making her feel safe and protected. And when a wife expresses her love to her husband, in the way the church expresses her love to Christ, being submissive to his will and available for his joy and pleasure. The result is sweet, beautiful, glorious act of worship in the eyes of God. It's an act of worship. 
That's what Paul means in Romans 12:1 when he says, I beseech you, brothers, in light of the mercies of God, in light of all that Christ has done for us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The whole of how we live in this body, the whole of what we do in this body and with this body is the way in which we worship God. Worship is not just something we do on Sunday mornings. Worship is how we live. Worship is how we are supposed to live. We are supposed to live lives of worship to God, submitting to his will, being submissive to his will, and saying, we as the church, we as the people of God, are here for your enjoyment and for your pleasure That is what it should look like within a marriage between a husband and his bride. Thus, in this chapter, Paul is going to correct, throughout chapter 7, Paul is going to correct all of the misconceptions and the bad ideas regarding sexual relations within marriage, and we need that, don't we? We need the Holy Spirit with the Word of God to scrub our brains. Paul will correct all of the misconceptions and the bad ideas regarding sexual relations with marriage, and he is going to bolster the sanctity of marriage as we walk through chapter 7. Thus, in chapter 6, well, at least the end of chapter 6, was all about what not to do, how not to engage in sexual relations. And then chapter 7 is all about how it should be done, what it should look like. With that, Paul says in verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good... For a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, there's a bit of debate as to the sentence, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In other words, the debate is this. Is that Paul's opinion? Is that what Paul is stating? Is that what Paul thinks? And is that what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth? Or is Paul citing the Corinthian church? Is he saying, this is what you say, but now let me, let me correct that? Because remember, there are no quotation marks in the original Greek. And so you see the debate even in our translations. For example, the ESV, if you're looking at it with me, and the NIV, they put quotation marks around that sentence which means that Paul is quoting them, that this is something that was in your letter or this is something that I've heard you say and now I want to respond to that. I want to correct that. I want to address that point. <laughs> However, the New American Standard has no quotation marks. They take it as this is what Paul is saying. 
that Paul's opinion is that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And you may think, yeah, Hexen, aren't you splitting hairs again? Why does it really matter? Because when you do exegesis, these kinds of questions matter. Because how we understand verse 1 will impact the entire way we interpret the rest of the chapter. Because all of chapter 7 has to be interpreted in light of verse 1. Because if this is Paul's opinion, then everything he says has to be understood in light of Paul's opinion that it is good, it is better for a man not to do this. But if Paul is citing the church in Corinth, and he's disagreeing with that, then the rest of chapter 7 is understood as a correction against verse 1. So we have to ask ourselves, first and foremost, what is this? Are these Paul's words, or is Paul citing the church in Corinth? I believe that Paul is citing the church in Corinth. So that's my position and I'm going to offer you four reasons for that. That this is not Paul's belief, but rather this is something that was being said or that was written in the letter to Paul, and he wants to correct this misunderstanding. Here's number, reason number one. If these are Paul's words, then verses 2 to 5 that we're going to be looking at, essentially we have to understand verses 2 to 5 in that Paul is saying, the only benefit to marriage is to avoid sin. If Paul agrees that it is better for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, then what he is saying in verses 2 to 5 is that the only real reason for getting married, the only benefit to marriage is to avoid sin, which means that Paul has a low view of marriage. But that would seem to fly in the face of Ephesians 5, verses 22 to the end. Because you read that, and you come away understanding that Paul has a lofty view of marriage. He has a lofty view of the institution of marriage. Paul argues that it is only in marriage that we are able to physically see the real relationship between Christ and his bride. And that that's why marriage was established. To exalt the glory of Christ. So it's hard to imagine that Paul would believe this. Number two... If verse 1 is Paul's opinion, then why does he take such a strong position against separating from your spouse? We see that in verses 10 to 14. We'll see it again in verse 27. He takes a very strong position against do not separate from your spouse. Don't do it. Verse 27, he says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. But if Paul thinks it's better to not have sexual, well, why not, Paul? I mean, if that's what it means to be holy, to, to deny yourself sexual pleasure, then why does Paul take such a strong approach against separating from your spouse? Third reason, there seems to be some in the church of Corinth that are advocating for asceticism. 
And I know we sometimes miss that. You read the book of Corinthians, and most people come away with, oh, this is a church that's just taught that anything goes. Uh, but that's not true, because you have to remember that in any church, you know, no church is monolithic, right? Churches are always uh, variegated. There are people in every church that hold different views, differing positions. And so we can't sit here and, and read Corinthians and believe Everybody thought this way. Everybody behaved this way. There were likely some within the church in Corinth that were espousing some form of asceticism, that to be holy, you ought to deny yourself certain worldly human enjoyments. We see that. He seems to be implying that in verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by limited agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, maybe for a limited time you can deprive one another to devote yourselves to prayer, there's a hint there that maybe there were some in the church who were saying, look, I know that we're married, but I'm going to be completely devoted to God. I am just going to pray, I'm going to fast, I'm going to read the Bible, and that's it, right? I don't have time for you, I'm completely devoted to God. Paul is saying that's a bad idea. There also seems to be some who may have thought this about food. We see in chapter 8, verse 8, Paul says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. We are no worse off if we do not eat. There may have been some within the church who thought, you know what, I'm holier if I deny myself certain foods. I'm going to deny myself certain foods. I'm not going to eat certain things. I'm going to have sexual relations with my wife or my husband because I'm completely, wholly devoted to God. Paul says, don't don't do that. Fourthly, ordinarily when Paul cites the Corinthians, he does so to correct them. That seems to be his regular practice. When he quotes them, he does so in order to correct them, not to agree with them. We've already seen that before in chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful, in quotes. Paul then says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, in quotes, citing them. But then he says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Then he quotes them again. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And then Paul responds, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We'll see this again in the book. When Paul quotes them, it is ordinarily to then correct their view. So I think that Paul is citing the church in Corinth, and this is not Paul's position. So apparently there are some in Corinth who are advocating uh, celibacy, uh, even within marriage, as a means of holiness. So how does Paul respond to that in verse 2? But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own So Paul says, number one, this is why your approach is a bad idea. He says that marriage does exist as a firewall against sexual temptation. It exists as a firewall against that. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It's interesting that he mentions them both, and you'll see that throughout chapter 7. Why is that? Because... Women also have sexual desires as well. Yes, men, it is true. They are human. 
humans were created with these desires. So Paul addresses them both. This isn't just a man problem, in other words, Paul wants to make clear. This isn't just a man problem. Statistics bear that out. The rise, the number of women who are becoming addicted to pornography is increasing at an alarming rate. Yes, men far outpace them, but this is a human problem. So so Paul addresses them both. There's two interesting things that need to be noted, however. First of all, he says avoiding sexual temptations is a reason for marriage, not the reason for marriage. The reason for marriage, for the institution of marriage, Paul makes clear in Ephesians 5, to glorify God. But as a firewall against sexual temptation, it is a reason. He'll make that clear when we get to verses 8 and 10. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says, if you're struggling, find a wife, find a husband who believes in the Lord, who is a believer, right? You got to have that minimal standard find somebody to marry. Secondly, the words should have in that sentence, each man should have his own wife. Interesting, it's the word, the Greek word is echo. And it doesn't mean simply to have in the sense of to possess or to own, but rather it means to have in the sense of to hold or to bring close or to embrace. Each man and each woman should have someone that they can bring close, that they can hold, that they can embrace because of the temptation toward sexual immorality. So uh, if you're married to someone who doesn't like to cuddle, here's your verse. You can say, God gave you to me so I can hold, so I can embrace, so sit still and quit fidgeting. This is particularly important for women, I think, because it is true that uh, when men engage in um, adultery, Most often, they are driven by sexual desires that are unbridled. But most women, statistics show and studies show, when most women are driven to have an extramarital affair, it's because they are simply not receiving the affection and the attention that they desire. It's not sexual. And so they are driven into the arms of another man, of someone who will give them the attention that they desire. So husbands, hold your wives. Hold them close. Give them the attention and the affection that they desire and that they deserve. The second way marriage acts 
text as a firewall against sexual temptation is found in verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Very interesting, the word conjugal rights, two Greek words, Um, this is a thought translation from the ESV. It's not literal. But it's interesting, none of the English translations give us a literal translation. Not even the NESB gives us a literal translation. They probably struggled with how, how do you translate this literally and have it make sense. Because the first Greek word is actually a word that means debt or financial obligation. Debt, financial obligation, a financial duty, so to speak. The second Greek word is a word that means a payment of some kind. Paul is borrowing language from the world of commerce. So you want a literal translation, here it is. The husband should give to his wife the payment she is owed and likewise the wife to her husband. The payment that she is owed. It's not just a right. In other words, Paul wants married couples to understand that you owe it to her. You owe this to her, and she owes this to you. It is a financial obligation for entering into this marriage relationship. Each spouse can say, you owe this to me. Just as Christ, because of his character and work, owes to the church. There's a phrase you don't hear very often. Let me finish the sentence. Christ owes something to us? Just as Christ, because of his character and because of his work, his life and death on the cross, owes to the church forgiveness, faithfulness, and First John 1 John 1.9 is all about. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That as the people of God, when we sin, no matter how often we sin or how badly we sin, as the people of God, every time we come to Christ, to God, seeking forgiveness, justice demands that God forgive us. Why? Because our debt has been paid. God can't hold our sin against us. He owes forgiveness to us because of Christ's death. So just as Christ, because of his character and work, owes to the church forgiveness, faithfulness, and protection, and the church owes to Christ worship honor, respect, and submissiveness, and to exist for his joy and his pleasure, right? We owe this to Christ. In light of what Christ has done for us, we owe this to him. We will be submissive to your will. We exist for your joy, for your pleasure. What Christ owes to us is forgiveness, protection, This is where Paul is getting this from. Husbands and wives owe this to 
each other. In verse 4, he now explains why he makes that statement in verse 3. For, right, so there's the explanation. Here's why I said what I said in verse 3. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And to be fair, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The wife. Before marriage, if you're a believer, before you were married, your body was not your own. It belonged to Christ, right? He says that the last verse of the previous chapter. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Your body does not belong to you if you are a believer. But get this, after marriage, your body belongs to Christ and to your spouse. It is still not your own. So understand what Paul is saying, especially since this comes right on the heels of verse 20 in the previous chapter. I said this last week, that this body these eyes, this mouth, these ears, these hands are reproductive organs, do not belong to you. They belong to Christ because he bought them with his blood. But understand this, if you're married, he not only bought you for himself, he bought you for your spouse. So these hands, this mouth, this body, these reproductive organs belong to your spouse. They're not yours. For their enjoyment and for their pleasure. You see, because the Christian life is always about serving others. It's the example that Christ gave. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gives the example of getting on his hands and knees and washing the disciples' feet. This was God doing this. The Christian life is always about saying, I am here for God and I am here for you. I'm here to serve other people and to bring joy into their life, not mine. Christian life is about sacrificing ourselves for the joy of others. Now, there is a hierarchy in that. God first, and if you're married, your spouse second. If you're married, you exist for the joy and the pleasure of Christ and for the joy and the pleasure of your spouse. Which means that in marriage, saying no is not an option most times. Right? Obviously, it's not that a spouse can never say no. Because there are other scriptures that come into play, such as the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. We all know that when we're sick and not feeling well, we don't want anybody to touch us. It works both ways. But unless there's a good reason, according to Paul, saying no is simply not an option. Because your body does not belong 
to you. Rather, the husband has the right to his wife's body, and the wife has the right to her husband's body. In verse 5, Paul then offers a possible reason to say no. He gives, he gives a reason himself. He wants to clarify what he just said in verse 4. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Don't miss that, by agreement. So it's fine to say, look, for the next week, I'm just going to pray and fast, and I'd like to be left alone, but that's something that a husband and wife have to agree on because she, she has a right to your body, and he has a right to hers. So there has to be agreement there that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then notice, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's interesting that he starts and ends with that. Verse 2, but because of temptation, and then he ends, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, Paul is an expert in human nature. He understands that sexual temptation is a powerful draw for human beings. Throughout biblical history and world history, sexual sins have been the downfall of many great people, of many enormous problems, right? We can go back to Lot and his two daughters. We can think of Samson and Delilah. We can think of David and Bathsheba. But even in world history, that has been a problem. Hollywood earns billions peddling sex, right? Everybody knows that. Sex sells. You want to sell your product? Advertise it. You want to sell billions of your product? Advertise it with sexual images. And people will buy it. And science spends billions every year trying to figure out how to have sex outside of marriage without consequences. Human beings are driven by it. The conclusion is this. Healthy sexual relations within marriage is the foremost barometer of a healthy Christ-centered marriage and is greatly glorifying to God. So if you are married, or if you will be married, Remember this, your body is not your own. You were purchased by Christ and for Christ, and you were purchased by Christ for your body. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray for everyone in this room who has been negatively affected by the world's warped view of marriage and sexuality, Father, we pray that you would transform our minds. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And I pray that you would help us to do just that both the adults and the young people in this church, the single and the married. Father, we pray that you would help us to have the mind of Christ when we think about marriage and sexuality within marriage, that you might be glorified and honored and praised. In Christ's name.